Greyhound to trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. This week, my co-host is author of the fantastic Doctor Who novels blog, Jason Miller. Great to have you back, Jason. All right, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. So this will be our first non-Doctor Who book podcast. We've, we've previously looked at um, some of the novels, but this time we'll be looking at Series 11, Episode 3, Rosa. Last... And hopefully you'll have me back in two years when the novelization comes out. Yes, definitely, yeah. <laughs> I suppose Chibnall might be uh, Chibnall might be busy for a bit longer than that. <laughs> yes, let's hope he is. Yeah. Um, so since we last spoke, you visited uh, London and Paris, and um, did you find any Doctor Who locations on, on your trip. So my wife had promised me one day of Doctor Who related tourism, <laughs> but in the event when you have an eight-year-old and you're trying to do all of London and all of Paris in four or five days. Uh, you really don't have time to do one full Doctor Who day. So we did Earl's Court, we found the police box. Cool. And when we got to Paris, I was just non-stop whistling the Dudley Simpson theme from City of Death. <laughs> including a video that I made from the top of the Eiffel Tower where I found the spots where the Doctor and Romana and Duggan were standing. So of course I overlaid the video with the City of Death music. Yeah. But the biggest thing that we did that was Doctor Who related was a visit to the Who Shop, which was pretty far out on the tube line, pretty far off the beaten path. It was about 30 or 45 minutes from where we were staying on the South Bank. But really, really enjoyed the trip to the Who Shop. The problem for me is that when I go to a Doctor Who store, I've already got everything. Yeah. I've already got all the books. I've already got all the videos. I've got a lot of the t-shirts. So I didn't really need anything. So I got the Target abridged City of Death novelization, the James Goss one, which just came out. Mm-hmm. And I read that in about five minutes. And I got my kid who's eight, a little series of Doctor Who figurines, which he really, really loved for about five minutes and then promptly lost. Oh, no. <laughs> but what's cool is that at the back of the shop, there's a TARDIS, a life-size TARDIS, and you walk in, it leads you into a museum in the back of the shop where they have all sorts of costumes and props from the original series. Regrettably, you are not allowed to take photographs back there. Uh, so the shop photos of me and my kid entering the TARDIS, but I'm not allowed to take pictures of the inside of the museum. Uh, but when we were back there, we found a seven-year-old girl and her grandma, her grandmother, and all of a sudden... My kid turned herself into Doctor Who expert because the seven-year-old girl knew everything. And my kid was trying to match her for expertise. <laughs> so my kid suddenly declared that she was a huge fan of the Tenth Doctor. So as soon as we got home, we watched Blink, which ended up being her first episode. Oh, brilliant. And my kid actually found stuff in Blink that I had never noticed before. So I think she just suddenly leapfrogged ahead of me on the Doctor Who fan scale. Yeah. <laughs> So, for example, when the police officer is zapped back in time by the Weeping Angels, it is implied that one of his children marries one of Catherine Nightingale's children. His oh. daughter was named Sally. And I had never noticed that, and my kid plugged into it right away. No, I didn't notice that either. Oh. And she, she noticed it within seconds. Mm. So the second Doctor Who episode that I showed her was Rosa, which we watched last Sunday. I've seen it with her. And she really, really enjoyed it. 
I think what helps, of course, is that Chris Chibnall is a much less Byzantine scriptwriter than Stephen Moffat. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to stop every five minutes and try and explain the plot. Yeah. But thanks to this trip, I think my little eight-year-old is a movie in the making. Excellent. Very good. That's the age I was when I started watching. I think it's a great time to, to get into it. Uh, yes, and she can definitely verify that. Yeah. It'll be uh, 30 years next week since I saw my first episode of Doctor Who. So uh going to probably have a rewatch of uh, The Happiness Patrol. That was the first story I saw. This would be... Let's go, oh gosh. I started watching when I was... I had just turned 11. It was in 1984. So that would make this 34 years for me. But I am not going to be watching my first episode to celebrate because that was Time Flight Part 1. Aha, uh-huh, right. <laughs> it's remarkable that I became a fan, but there you go. Yeah, people say that about The Happiness Patrol to me as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we'll be able to enjoy Time Flight in, uh, on Blu-ray in um, HD uh, next month, so that'll be something to look forward to. Yes, yes, I'm very excited about that. I have not even finished with the Season 12 Blu-ray yet. I, I, I didn't get that, and uh, it's, uh, it's hard to get hold of now. I, um, I was a fool with that one, but um, I've already pre-ordered my uh, Season 19, so I won't be caught out again, definitely. So. I have watched about half of the season twelve Blu-ray. Highly recommended because they bring they bring in new special features that are not on the original discs. Yeah. Plus, you have to say for an episode as chintzy and as weak as the Santaran experiment, mm. it looks so good on Blu-ray because it was all shot on outdoor video. Yeah. But this was filmed yesterday. It's just an amazing restoration job. Unbelievable. Excellent. I'm hoping for a re-release, so uh, I will be able to get it then. Uh, they, they keep I'm sure there'll be a re-release. Yeah, I keep hearing sure. talk of it. So, um, so yeah, so I'm pinning my hopes on. Oh, an Australian copy. Apparently, uh, they're still available in Australia, and they're in the same region as, as the UK. So they'll, they'll play on our, our players. Uh, cool. Well, uh, without further ado, shall we watch Rosa? Yes, I have my video player queued up. Let's get to it. Uh, so if you are watching along at home, we will press play in three, two, one. So, Mark, what do you think of these new opening titles? I I like them. There's um, they're quite a change in tone, aren't they? They're not. It's the other ones were quite adventurous, you know, the TARDIS racing through the vortex and that kind of thing. Um, this is more like the Hartnell Troughton ones, I think, where it's it's about mystery and uh, the unknown. It feels, which I is like, why I love them so much. It is yeah. such a callback to the Hartnell and Troughton opening titles, minus uh, of course Troughton's face. Yeah, and it looks beautiful in HD. Yeah, you've still got like a bit yeah. of a star field and a, and a bit of a tunnel sort of thing. So it feels like it, it does pay homage to all of them in a way. Yeah. So here we have our opening flashback to 1943, and Mallory Blackman's name in the credits makes her the first non-white writer to ever write for the Doctor Who TV series. Begging the question, what took so long? Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. And she jumps right in with the flashback to Rosa Parks' first time getting thrown off the bus in 1943, and this actually happened. Right. With the same bus driver. Ah, Right. Uh, so yeah, so it gives the the uh, it gives you the the sense as well that this this has been happening to her for years and years and years, and it's this build up, isn't it? That, uh, 
And even better, it's a hundred percent true incident. This was not mm. arise from the script. This actually happened, and it happened the way that he that she says it happened. Yeah. I, I bought my kid the morning of this episode. I bought her the Who Was book for Rosa Parks. Who Was is a American book series, and there's one for pretty much every celebrity you can think of. Mm. There's also now a TV series on Netflix, which, by the way, is hilarious. But I bought her the Rosa Parks book, so she read it in about six minutes, like me in City of Death. Yeah. Then as soon as the bus driver showed up in this scene, my kid jumps up and shouts out, it's Jim Blake, he's an evil bus driver. <laughs> so my kid also gives this episode high marks for historical realism. Excellent. I think oh, I'm this a... bus driver is so nasty. This is a very punchable villain. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, something we were discussing just, just before we started there was, uh, like you say, it's the first uh, non-white writer on Doctor Who, but... Chibnall takes a co-writing credit, which uh, was a bit of a surprise, I think, when it when came up the first time I watched it. That's a bit tone deaf, perhaps. Mm. I don't want to criticize the guy three episodes into his tenure, but it does feel a bit uh, like taking possession of somebody else's narrative when you give yourself a co-writer's credit. Yeah, and um, I think I remember reading an interview with Stephen Moffat where he said that the reason he didn't put any co-writer credits on until his fourth series was because that's what Russell T. Davies had done. So no matter how much work they'd done on other scripts up to that point, they'd given the credit to the original writer. Um, but then in each of the respective fourth series, they'd taken a co-writer credit if they'd significantly, you know, kind of rewritten it. Um, I think for royalties and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it seems like Chibnall's doing that from the off. So Jody is sporting a new T-shirt in this one. It's a... Uh pinkish instead of blue i love it i think it's great yeah this uh this like reference with alternate blue coat she now has her alternate pink t-shirt yeah this reference to the uh she says nine attempts to to reach sheffield um and graham says 14 i wonder if this is possibly where some of the spin-off novels are going to be set uh the first one of those arrived today for me i got the good doctor by juno dawson Oh, I have. I'm going to get those digitally, so I haven't re- received them yet. But I think you're right. That's a very good place to put in the uh, the original novels. Yeah. What do you think of this new set? I feel like I haven't got a, f- a sense of it yet. There's there's been no big sweeping wide shots like you had with all the previous ones, where you could see the whole thing at once. It feels. You're right. Everything is done very tight. Right. Yeah, everything's a close up on a face, and you see. You see uh, the details in the background, not always in focus. Um, whereas I think about the first time that you saw um, Christopher Eccleston's or any of the other new ones, you come in with this big kind of sweeping shot. Maybe it's been shot from the ceiling, that kind of thing. Oh, Ryan, don't do that. Uh-oh. Punched in the face. Yeah, and this, so, uh, this kind of made me think about Thin Ice from the, the previous series where... You've got the, the racist character of uh, Lord Sutcliffe, I think he was called, who is obviously vile and racist towards um, Bill. Um, and, and the Twelfth Doctor just knocks him out, basically, just kind of punches him there and then. This is a, it's quite a different approach, isn't it? Yeah, here the uh, evil white guy is punching out the hero. Mm. So this is obviously set in Alabama. And I visited 41 United States. Alabama is one of the nine that I have not been to yet. So I can't speak to how much this looks like 
the actual Alabama, mm-hmm. but it was filmed in South Africa, which adds an extra bit of, yeah. I guess irony is not the right word to use. Yeah, resonance, I think. One definitely. of the racist regimes on Earth outside of Alabama, when you film the episode there. Yeah. That's Pete's volumes. And all right, Vinette Robinson, she is phenomenal in this. I mean, she watched the video. She got Rosa Parks' accent down cold. The biggest worry that I had going into this episode was how is he going to portray America? Because we typically don't come across very well in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. especially accent-wise. But yeah. She, she nails it here. This is possibly one of the best jobs of playing an American by a non-American actress that we've gotten in the show. Yeah, because she's um, like Jodie Whittaker and, and Mandip Gill is from Yorkshire. Uh, so it's uh, you know can be quite a strong accent in itself. And I was watching with my kid talking over it, so I may have missed some of the nuance, but I didn't catch any accent slips. Uh, I thought you nailed it. Yeah, based on my preliminary hearing. Yeah. So, is there any particular um, good or bad examples from from Doctor History that, that stand out for you? Obviously, um, Peter Purvis's Morton Dill is probably a pretty accurate one, I guess. And if Stephen Moffat had been writing this episode, you know that he would have found a way to get Morton Dill into Alabama yeah. <laughs> years before it took place in the chase. He would have cast somebody as a young Peter Purvis. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you could have found someone that did the accent as well, though, would they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't want to find out. Uh, you, you had, obviously, American accents in Dallas Take Manhattan and the Angels in Manhattan. Yeah. And in Dalek, which took place nominally in Utah. And he had just some hideously bad American accents in all three of those. Mm. And it's easy to do a very bad Southern accent, but this probably, accent-wise, is one of Doctor Who's better stabs at America. Yeah. And there was Crasco, the bad guy. Looks terrific in his Marlon Brando getup. I was explaining yeah. Marlon Brando to my kid. And in fact, Jody actually calls him Brando later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one bit went past earlier was um, Rosa talks about Emmett Till, which it wasn't a story that I was familiar with, um, but I looked it up afterwards. It's, it's a horrific story. This, uh, he was only 14 when he was murdered. He was visiting relatives from up north in Chicago, and he made the mistake of talking to or whistling at a white woman, depending on which sources you read. And the vigilante is just got to him, and they murdered him in a horrific fashion. It's a very well-known story over here. It's one of the keys that brought the civil rights battle mainstream, Mm. along, of course, with Rosa Parks and Meg Evers and the three civil rights workers. Mm. I was surprised that, when you told me before the recording, that you hadn't heard of the Emmett Till story, because, again, it's very well-known over here. Yeah, um, uh, it wasn't one that I'd I'd come across. it's, I, don't, I would say, not as well-known as, um, as Rosa Parks, certainly. And it's certainly not a story that Doctor Who can tell, because you can't tell the Emmett Till story, because he has to die in order for the civil rights struggle to unfold the way that it did. Yeah. Whereas Rosa Parks is a much safer choice, because there's no real tragedy. She lives another 50 years after this. Yeah. yeah so, think- one moment in the script that kind of surprised me is... The doctor knows where they are, mm-hmm. and the companions know where they are. They should know better than to attempt mixed-race seating at a diner in Alabama in 1955. And they did it so unselfconsciously. They, they should have known that that was going to be a problem. Yeah. I don't know why the script portrayed them as so ignorant as to where they were. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, particularly the doctor, I think, um, who, yeah, has, has a lot more of the knowledge in this episode of the dates uh, that things happen. Um, and it's obviously the vastly more widely travelled of the of the group. And that leads me to a second thing that, at least in my particular Facebook news feed, uh, news feed, I should say, as most folks call it, folks who pronounce it properly, <laughs> but people were complaining about the lack of a heroic white character in this episode to give the episode a little more nuance. At least in terms of fictional Alabama in the United States, you have Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, who is more of a heroic white character from Alabama. Mm -hmm. This episode is kind of lacking that. But on the other hand, the segregationist governor of Alabama, at the time this episode took place, won his re-election with 88% of the vote. So if you're walking around Alabama in 1955, I guess 88% of the population really was virulent racist. So you're not going to find any heroic white characters. Yeah. And is that, is that George Wallace? Is that right? Uh, I was the governor before Wallace, ah, right. whose name escapes me without resorting to Wikipedia. But George Wallace, I believe, came a little bit later. Ah, right. George Wallace, of course, not the only segregationist governor in Alabama history. No. And he's because um, I was reading up on on this a little bit during the week. He's a he's a Democrat as well, which um, I guess not knowing that much about American politics, other than the you know kind of what's going on currently, was seemed surprising to me. That would be a whole commentary in and of itself. But okay. he was a Southern Democrat, which was almost a completely different party. Basically, during the Civil War, the Democratic Party owned the South. The Republican Party party formed in the North around abolition. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, and the Republicans were left-leaning, and the Democrats were right-leaning. All that started to shift by the 1920s when the immigrants came north and they all registered in the Democratic Party. So by the 1950s, you had almost three parties, the Republicans, the Democrats, and the Southern Democrats, who remained virulently racist while the rest of the Democrats had moved to the left. So in the 1950s and 60s is when the Southern Democrats became Republicans, which is how Richard Nixon got elected with the Southern strategy. Richard Nixon took the jilted segregationists and brought them under his wing and ushered them into the Republican Party. Right. And the shift finally came complete in the 1990s when the Republicans took back Congress for the first time in 40 years. You had the last of the racist Southern Democrats all switching parties like uh, Senator Shelby who I believe is still in the Senate, and they became Republicans. So the swing is pretty much complete. But back then, the Democrats still had a very large segregationist wing, which now occupies the other side of the aisle. Mm. And this confrontation between Crasco, this, if you hadn't been sold on Jodie Whittaker already, she is the doctor. Yeah, scene. absolutely. The way she both confronts and belittles Crasco. Yeah. It's great. She's just not going to get right up in his face. Yeah. Calling him Brando with the uh, derogatory nickname. Yeah. <laughs> um, she crushes the scene. Yeah, and perfect. Just outthinking him as well. Very doctory. It's uh, interesting that he's heard of TARDISes, I thought, as well. Yeah, and Artron energy. Yeah. Uh, but again, he's from the 79th century, so I guess time travel knowledge is a little more mainstream. Yeah, and the vortex manipulators, which is uh, something we saw back in the RTD era, well, across the whole kind of new series era, aren't they? 
Captain Jack, yes, Doctor Who's yeah. first American companion. Yeah. Well, you don't count Perry, which I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, how, in terms of American accents, how do you rate uh, Nicola Bryant? Is that? Uh, I was watching season twenty-three recently, Trial of a Time Lord. She wasn't even trying anymore. In fact, <laughs> Mysterious Planet they established that her character considers London her hometown. Yeah. So I think they just gave up the ghost there. Yeah. Whereas Jack Harkness actually grew up in the States, and that is his real accent. Yeah. Even though he was born in Scotland. It, I feel like it, this is it's a slightly bleaker view of the future, isn't it? That in the 79th century there would still be this kind of racism uh, between humans well, even, you know? Not, and, to get, sorry. not to get too political, but we're recording this on the date that uh, a synagogue in Pittsburgh was shot up and 11 people were murdered. So... Racism is never going away. So the fact that you have it in the 79th century, uh, I mean, it hasn't gone away in 2018, so why would it go away in the year 8,000? Yeah. I, I guess um, you, you think in Doctor Who sort of lore, there is that uh, by that time mankind's out in the stars and is you know kind of working with other races and that kind of thing. Um, then, of course, yeah. you have the mutants, which takes place in the year 3000, where they built a specifically apartheid segregationist regime on the planet Soas, yeah. where you had human-only and native-only transmat receptacles. Mm. Yeah. So even in the 1970s, Doctor Who was saying, racism is not going away. This is true, yeah. And particularly, yeah. as you say, the times we're living at the moment, um, Britain and America, it's, uh, there's, there's an ugly wave of, of nationalism that good to hope is a, is a blip. Kind of, uh, I don't trust myself to speak about what happened in Pittsburgh today. And then, of course, you had the pipe bomb sent to several left-leaning political figures, including two former presidents. Yeah. And that, that man was just arrested yesterday. It turns out he was a very open Trump supporter. Yeah. So, getting myself back to the episode, you notice there was the whites-only sign on the hotel. Mm -hmm. My mother would have been 11 when this took place. And my mother is, you know, as, as, as left-wing as it gets, you know, Jewish girl from Brooklyn in the 1950s. My mother comes from the same neighborhood as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. My mother visited the Deep South in the 1950s and early 60s, and she remembers seeing the whites-only signs. She still talks now at age 74 about seeing the white cafeteria. So this, this was all real. This, this, this is all actual American history. Yeah. And I'm not proud of it, but the episode certainly doesn't flinch from confronting it. No. Now, here's another scene that bothered some of my friends, my white friends, on Facebook. And I, of course, should say that we really don't have the right to be offended. This is not really our story. Mm -hmm. But this police officer, do you think he serves any plot utility, or is he just here as a time-wasting example of another bad white American? This scene doesn't really further the plot in any sense, does it? Yeah, yeah, I'd say the latter. I think it's... Uh... I think, it, yeah, it's the sense that it's it's everyone, isn't it? It's the it's the state apparatus. It's not just the people on the street that they've met. It's it's the law. It's you know the, this segregation's enshrined in law. And I suppose you then get the juxtaposition with um, Yaz, who's having to hide, but is a police officer in her own right. So I suppose there's uh, right. there's an element of contrast there. She was inspired to become a police officer by the Rosa Parks story, I believe, I believe she says, which is ironic because Rosa Parks' encounter with the police was getting dragged off the bus. 
Mm. But I believe this is the same officer who shows up to arrest her at the end of the episode, but he's it's not it's not featured. They don't actually show her being dragged off the bus, so you see him coming up the stairs. Yeah. So this is supposed to be the same character, but they didn't really do a lot more with it other than this one scene. No. Um the the doctor's responses here are quite clever. I don't recognize anybody but by that description, right? She yeah. uses her words very, very carefully. Yeah. The uh, the references to Banksy um, in this scene. I don't, I don't know. Is Banksy famous in the states? I don't know if he's uh, international or mainly. Famous oh, he's here. famous in the states. He took up residence in New York, which of course is where I'm recording from about I, ten years ago. I didn't realize that. Right. He had set up a pop up shop right outside of Central Park, the Grand Army Plaza. Then he hired some vagrant, I guess is the wrong word to use, to Manabu selling original Banksy art for twenty five dollars a piece. Wow. But he didn't advertise it. You had to know that it was Banksy art. Right. So the next day, Banksy comes out with a statement. You know, people bought my actual art for 25 bucks. And we're not doing that again. Because uh, the trick wouldn't work. No. But he sold Banksy art to the people for 25 bucks, whereas it now goes at auction for, you know, a million and a half. Yeah, we've, we've had... Banksy story. He was in New York last year, and he put a mural up on Houston Street, which is in lower Manhattan. I work mm. off Houston Street. One of my coworkers was walking along Houston Street later that night and saw somebody putting up the mural and didn't think of the possibility that it could be Banksy. Uh. And didn't take any pictures and didn't go across the street to see the guy's face. So I have a friend who literally saw Banksy putting up art in New York late one night in Lower Manhattan in the West Village and didn't take a picture of it because he didn't know. Yeah. The next day it was a huge news story that Banksy had uh, come back to New York. Yeah. The, the story, so he's pretty well known, at least where I am in the five boroughs. Yeah. I don't know about Alabama, of course, but we know Banksy. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, the story over here, one of his uh, pieces of art was at auction, uh, and as soon as it sold, and it went for, like, obviously an extortionate sum, um, a, a shredder built into the frame activated uh, and shredded the painting. So it, yes. it appeared as strips out of the bottom, but I think it apparently only increased its value. Uh, yes. <laughs> the, the sale was finalized so that woman is now the proud owner of Shredded Banksy yeah so this is a nice shot between uh, Ryan and Yaz I'm not sure if the writers have a romance in mind for them later in the season kind of like Ian and Barbara impliedly had a romance yeah but they have a pretty good vibe together I like the two of them the way they play off one another yeah the scene earlier when they climbed through the window together and um, and she talks about the last time she did that it was a guy from school and he sort of says well he was he was punching above his weight. Um, right. He kind of let slip that, uh, yeah, maybe how he feels there or, or what he thinks. And Bradley Walsh is phenomenal, too. What's interesting about this is there's so many echoes to the Hartnell era because you have the opening titles, you have theme music, you have a doctor and three companions, mm -hmm. and one of the companions is called Grandfather. Yeah. Just like in the Hartnell era. Yeah, it feels like they, they've gone back to that template to some extent, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah I think... Uh, episode almost being a pure historical, almost. Yeah. I think Bradley Walsh was uh, one of the people uh, that wasn't a great reaction to when he was cast. He's, uh, I mean, he is an actor, but he's, he's best known in the UK at the moment. He, he hosts a daily daytime quiz show, um, which is called The Chase, uh, which is the name of a heart ah. story. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, that's kind of probably the first thing that comes to mind when when you think of Bradley Walsh. He's, uh, I mean, he's been a, he's been a comedian. He used to do comedy sketches. He's he's been an actor. He's he's done loads of different uh, kind of things. He's a kind of a uh, I suppose like an all time light entertainer in a way. Uh, See, I know him from the Sarah Jane Adventures. He had done a turn on the Sarah Jane Adventures late in its run. Yeah. Yeah, I always forget so about that. So most of my UK pop culture knowledge was filtered filtered through folks who appeared on Doctor Who. Yeah. So there's a guy called Richard Wells that I follow on Twitter. He's uh, he does the art department graphics on Doctor Who, and he was he was tweeting about this, saying that all these bus timetables contain accurate Montgomery bus information. So any the, the kind of level of research and. Uh, uh, the uh, the efforts gone into recreation here were uh, were pretty accurate. It looks great, and that is you know the actual bus. We've all seen the inside of it. President Obama sat on it during his presidency. They got it right, and even the uh, even the advertisements look vintage. If you look at the ads on the top of the bus, yeah. So, Amanda Peel is great. I am falling in love with her pretty rapidly. Yeah. Apologies to my wife. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, it seems like she might get a bit more of the limelight next week as well. It looks like um, maybe focus more on her family and her, her life back in Sheffield. So that would be good to see her come to the fore a bit more, I think. Well, something else that gave me a heart and vibe about this uh, new season is that the Doctor, as of episode three, doesn't know how to pilot the TARDIS properly. Yeah. So I'm hoping we get back to a lost in space vibe, which I was hoping for when Peter Capaldi became the Doctor. Because his first lines are, do you know how to fly this thing? Yeah. You have to know how to fly with precision. I would like to see a doctor who can't get the companions home. So we'll see if that goes away with tomorrow's episode. Yeah, that'll be interesting. It would be good to get a season like that again, I think. Um, I don't like it. I don't know about everybody else, but if I want Doctor Who made entirely to buy specifications, that's how you would do it. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because we didn't know until... um, the, uh, until episode two, how long they would be without the TARDIS and they'd be sort of kind of hitchhiking their way around. Um, until I thought, they got it back right away by pure coincidence. Yeah, I thought they might drag that out a little bit longer. Yeah. So I don't know if you read um, Mallory Blackman previously wrote a Seventh Doctor short story um, for the, the Puffin um, 50th anniversary collection where during the twenty. 20- 13 they had a story for a different doctor come out each month so january had the first doctor and so on so in july um was uh, mallory blackman's ripple in time which which does share a couple of themes with this actually the idea that you know small small actions have big consequences further down um and a lot of it's about about prejudice as well i will have to put on my stupid american hat and admit that I had never heard of Mallory Blackman before this episode. So I have her novella, but I have it, number one, on my Kindle, not the book. And number two, I've never read it, which makes me a bad Doctor Who fan. But she also evidently is a very prolific writer in the UK and has done a YA series of novels of her own, which I have never heard of and have never read. I, so this episode, for me, is going to be a gateway to her fiction. Yeah, I, I don't think she's as well-known in the States as she is on your side of the pond. Yeah, I was aware of her, but but I haven't read any of her stuff uh, other than the um, the Doctor Who one. Um, but I know the publicity at the time said she was kind of a lifelong Doctor Who fan. You know, she does she does know her stuff in that sense. 
Um, I gather she's a huge get in terms of a writer, but I was mm. not aware of her. Yeah. So this is a nice scene where Ryan follows Rosa Parks home and tries to join her camp, and she's suspicious. Yeah. But he plays the scene very, very well. I mean, you really can't complain about any of the companions. Everyone hits their marks. Yeah, definitely. I have taken to this TARDIS crew very, very nicely. Yeah, they're very, very good. Um, and we're about to get a celebrity cameo coming up. Mm-hmm. So when they enter Rosa Parks' house, I pointed to a freeze frame and I told my kid, all right, who's that person over there? And she didn't guess. Because I knew it was coming. I had seen the cast list in advance. Ah, uh, right. But I guess we'll talk about that more when it comes back. Yeah. So here's the doctor trying to find Crasco again. What do you think of Jody's uh, outfit? I, I like it. It's... Uh... I like. I always like a doctor in a long coat with a kind of a cool silhouette like that. Um, it, it's surprising it didn't provoke any comment. I guess when she arrives in 1950s Alabama, it's it's quite kind of out of whack with what everyone's wearing, isn't it? It really is. Um, but then I guess that's the, that's a pretty much standard thing for Doctor Who, isn't it? I mean, even uh, Colin Baker's coat didn't always elicit a reaction when he met people. <laughs> it did for me, Mark. Yeah. It did for me. <laughs> there actually is a very large Doctor Who poster, an ad in the subway station right by my home in Brooklyn. So every time we see Jodie Whittaker coming up the subway stairs, my kid goes, she's so pretty. My kid is in love with her. Yeah. Oh, so here we get uh, Crasco's backstory. Yeah, a bit of uh, Storm Cage as well, which uh, is uh, a reference for uh, from the Moffat era where... River Song was imprisoned. Right, and I guess the question for me is, Crasco gets dispatched pretty easily and early. People are wondering if he's coming back or if he's going to be part of a bigger plot thread right the season. I'm wondering that, because the amount of people who are teleported away so far, we're only three episodes in, but uh, Tim Shaw in The Woman Who Fell to Earth, uh, and you've got Anstrom and Epso in The Ghost Monument, they're quite suddenly just kind of zapped away. It does make me wonder uh, how many of them we'll see again or if we'll see them again. I thought I had read that this was going to be a series of one-off episodes with no cliffhangers, but yeah. so far there's been a lot of interconnection. Because obviously the stanza featured prominently, as I mentioned, in the Ghost Monument. Mm. Yeah. So maybe we'll find out that they're behind this guy, or maybe this guy will come back later in the year. Yeah, and there's a bit of a theme of... Oh, the doctor just jumps in and smashes his stuff. I love yeah. that. It's very physical. There's a bit of a theme of, of sort of technological implants, I feel, as well. In, in episode one, the DNA bombs that got implanted on their collarbones, and then the, they got the translation circuits implanted in the second episode, and uh, now you've got Crasco's got the, um, the inhibitor implanted in his brain. Right, it almost becomes a running gag. Yeah, there's, uh, I wonder if that's something of a theme. I mean, I guess that would point towards the Cybermen, if anyone, but uh, they, they've only so recently been been used. I will say, when the bad guy first appeared out of his egg-slash-pod and the woman who fell to Earth, I thought it was a Cyberman at first, even though I knew there were no interesting doubts. Yeah. I thought it was a Cyberman, but of course it turned out to be very, very different. Hmm. 
Well, if anybody, uh, I guess in the UK, has watched um, Celebrity Come Dancing tonight, um, they'll have seen the 13th Doctor dancing with a Cyberman. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if it's canon, but that's the that's their first meeting, I suppose, on screen. Oh, yeah, we don't have that particular series in the US. There's, there's some clips on, on Twitter um, you, you might see. So they actually dance to the Doctor Who theme tune. It's... Uh, it's something, yeah. <laughs> well, we have Dancing with the Stars here in the U.S., but uh, yeah. that's not really the kind of show where you're going to get a Doctor Who reference. Ah, yeah. so there's our uh, celebrity, our, our historical celebrity cameo, so to speak. Yeah. I like I, Ryan's reaction is to use everybody's full names, which is what you do when you talk about historical figures, isn't it? So. <laughs> exactly. But usually not. And of course, they mention him last to drag out the beat. And yeah. There he is. With the handshake, the camera zooms in on the handshake. And look at look at his reaction. Ryan's reaction is great. Yeah. Love that. I thought it was interesting to have MLK only in the one scene and not, not to have a more pivotal part in the episode because obviously this episode was he and Rosa helped orchestrate all this. Yeah. So he was a pretty big figure. He's only in the one scene here. Would have been nice to have the doctor meet him, but I guess that makes mm. the episode a little too crowded. Yeah. So Ryan gets the encounter all to himself. Am I right in saying that um, Martin Luther King, you can hear him at the start of Remembrance of the Daleks? Yes, he speak. is yeah, one of the voices, along with Charles de Gaulle and JFK and yeah. Rich Phillip. So he's, he's second Doctor Who appearance. <laughs> and this yes. One. Ben Aronovich, having been the first Doctor Who writer to overly address uh, white-on-black racism yeah. in that script. Ah, and here's Graham mingling with the bus drivers. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about this uh, before I forget later on. Mm -hmm. You have a companion who's a bus driver. You have a character in the episode who's an evil bus driver. You have somebody who's trying to change history by preventing Rosa Parks from getting arrested on December 1st, as if she wouldn't just try again the next day. And you have the need for the doctor to fabricate an excuse to get a bus driver to have Rosa Parks arrested it's almost begging it's almost so obvious that it's surprised they didn't do it why didn't they just have Graham have to swallow his pride and be the bus driver yeah I wonder about that I mean that would have been I guess very very tough on the character um if he'd had then had to fall the police and everything it would have been great dramatic tension like in the Aztecs you know the TARDIS crew has to cooperate with human sacrifice. Yeah. And here, it's to cooperate with a racist, uh, segregated bus system. Yeah. Been a really interesting character beat. I'm surprised they didn't go for it. Mm. Maybe it was obvious. Yeah. But what's the point they can grab a bus driver and put him <laughs> in one of the most famous bus driving episodes in American history and not having him drive the bus? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it'd be interesting when some, uh, there's so little behind the scenes stuff, is there, or, or insight. I think even during the series, it felt like we got more from the previous showrunners about, about the process and and the decisions. Well, like with Doctor Who Confidential, where the making up was as long as the episode itself. Yeah. Yeah, you always used to, to leave a bit of Jody a... is writing on the walls. It's very Trout-esque. Yeah, it's like the invasion, isn't it? 
Although she uses the UK dating system where it's one twelve fifty five. For us, it's twelve one fifty five because we put them on first. Yeah. Random American nitpick number yeah. thirty seven. <laughs> She's so amazing. Mm. She, I can see why they cast her. She's so good. Yeah, she really uh, just captivates the camera. Absolutely. This um, the the talk coming up about you know the small changes um, to make things better reminded me of um, President Obama's speech. I think maybe in the last month or two, where I can't quite remember the exact words, obviously, but he was talking about how you know you've got to strive to make small changes and, and make things better you, just because you're not going to get everything you want to make it perfect you, you know uh, you, boy, do I, boy do I miss him yeah uh, come back President Obama we need you yeah it's good to see that he's, uh, he's he's started kind of openly criticizing Trump in speeches and he's going around the country campaigning yeah uh, here, here's our Second bus driver. Mm-hmm. And this is where it turns out that the doctor is friends with Frank Sinatra and has given him a time-traveling cell phone. Yeah. So here's mm-hmm. a question that has no bearing on the episode at all. Did the doctor actually pay for this guy to fly out to uh, see Sinatra? Or was it a fake and he doesn't actually get there? Well, I, I took it to mean that... Um She'd arranged for Frank Sinatra to arrange it. Yeah. Um, oh, well, uh, through Elvis, I guess, isn't it? It's Elvis that she gave the phone to, and uh, Elvis lent Sinatra the phone. I thought she mentioned in that scene that she'd also given Frank a phone, but my kid was busy talking at the time, so I might have missed the line. I, I think she said that, uh, that Elvis gave Sinatra the phone. Um, ah. But, I mean, I guess the only people they can call are the doctor, so... But, uh, <laughs> Uh, right. Oh, maybe they're playing, um, I don't know, Candy Crush or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Taking selfies. Yes, ah, and here we go. Here's uh, Jim Blake again. Mm. Yeah, this uh, this scene by the creek. They, See, uh, this scene is funny, but it's... When you have Graham as a bus driver, it's dramatically unnecessary. yeah. Bradley Walsh goes a lot more cockney in this scene as well. It feels like. Maybe he's... You, you, you tend to play up your natural accent when you're under stress. So yeah. my Brooklyn accent varies depending on my situation. Right. So maybe he's doing it for uh, on purpose. Yeah. And there goes Jim Blake, back to the bus. Yeah. So, oh... So the point of this episode is that Rosa Parks has to get arrested on December 1st, and the exact chain of events has to happen in a certain way, or history will not go on course. Mm-hmm. But Rosa Parks and MLK had been planning for this and working it from behind the scenes, which is kind of intimated in the scene in Rosa's house, where you meet Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. So... Even if she had not gotten arrested on December 1st, and even if the bus was not crowded enough, and even if it was a different bus driver, she still would have found a way to protest, and she still would have gotten arrested, and the boycott still would have happened. So in one sense, the episode 
makes her seem more like a passive victim of history rather than an agent who was trying to make it happen. The yeah. saying that she wouldn't have become a hero she wasn't arrested at that time, in that place, by that person. But that's not really how it played out historically. No. You could say in one sense that the episode costs her a little bit of agency by playing it that way. That was at least one of the complaints that I saw in my Facebook feed by the American fans I know who were watching. Yeah. There's, there's I'm no... curious. So how well known is the Rosa Parks story in, in the UK? How much is it taught in the school? How much is it a part of the background cultural knowledge where you are? I would have said it's very well known. Um, I think I, I must have learned about it at school. Um, but I was talking to a lady I work with um, who had watched the episode, really enjoyed it, cried at the end, but said she'd never heard of Rosa Parks, which I, I found really surprising, I think. I, you know, But I don't know if that's a generation thing. She's probably in her 50s. Um, but, uh, but to be fair, I mean, this is... This is a lady who also uh, has some other strange ideas. She thinks the moon landings were faked and things like that. So, yeah. I'm, I know Americans who believe that too, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, she, she was saying the other day that she thinks that crows have funerals for each other. Um, she, yeah, she's, um, she's got some strange ideas. So she's not a kind of a great barometer of um, probably what, what people think and know. No, maybe we can find a better example of someone yeah. who doesn't know Rosa Parks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly I was well aware of the story. I mean, not to the level that I would have known the name of the bus driver. Um, and I don't actually think I knew that she knew Martin Luther King. I don't think I knew that, that level of background there. Um, I basically just knew about the incident, uh, and that, that, you know, that was the beginning of, uh, you know, the protests and things. Yeah, as I understand it, this was the episode that kind of rocketed him into national prominence because he he would have been in his twenties or so when this happened. He would have been yeah. a very young preacher. Yeah. I actually visited MLK's birthplace and museum and gravesite in Atlanta a few years ago uh, when I was traveling with a friend. Mm -hmm. So he's obviously very very well known here. Yeah, he's one of the epic figures. He and Rosa Parks on the Mount Rushmore of civil rights. Yeah, he's definitely, definitely obviously Martin Luther King, really, really well known here as well. I should also point out a couple of things while we're at a bit of a lull on the action. So 1955 is a pretty seminal year in American civil rights. That's the year that Brown versus Board of Ed was finally decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that was orchestrated by Thurgood Marshall, who was the head lawyer for the NAACP. And that was the Supreme Court case that said that segregation, segregated schools are unconstitutional. And it overturned the previous policy of separate but equal, which the Supreme Court had ushered in the 1890s in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, which went down as one of the most infamously bad Supreme Court decisions until the last five years when it's gotten a lot worse. Mm -hmm. But this is the year of Brown versus Board of Ed. It's the year of Thurgood Marshall, who eventually winds up on the Supreme Court himself. Now, Brown versus Board of Ed kind of ricocheted through the American cultural landscape. Most of the current right-wing blogosphere, right-wing think tanks, National Review Magazine, uh, the Heritage Society, the Heritage Foundation for right-wing lawyers, all that stems from opposition to the Supreme Court case in Brown versus the Board of Education. 
And the book To Kill a Mockingbird, the original version of To Kill a Mockingbird was released a few years ago by Harper Lee. It was built as her lost manuscript. Atticus Finch, the great white savior in To Kill a Mockingbird, in Set a Watchman, which is the original version of the story, he's a very segregationist figure who opposes Brown versus Board of Ed. So that's a case that was decided that still has repercussions in America today. Reading Brown versus Board of Ed when I was an undergraduate, taking a course on American constitutional law, that's one of the things that inspired me to go to law school. So even as a white Jewish kid from the North, uh, the civil rights cases have tremendous meaning for me, personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was so excited for this episode. And obviously the battle is not yet won. There are still people who don't believe in Brown versus Board of Education. There are still some people who believe that case was wrongly decided. And many of them are now joining the federal judiciary. Yeah. So we thought that the civil rights era had won. We thought we won the battle, but that's certainly not the case. Mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird is coming to Broadway. I'm going to see it with some coworkers next month. And I'm very curious now how To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a white savior narrative, is going to play in the year 2018 in Donald Trump's America yeah. with Jeff Daniels playing Atticus Finch. I'm very curious to see how they will have produced the play. Mm. Ah, it goes Prasco. Yeah. So you think Ryan's basically killed him here if, he, if he's gone that far in the past? Well, Ryan doesn't quite know what he's doing. Maybe he didn't set the controls properly. Yeah. And maybe he didn't set them that far back in time. Maybe he only sent them back to the 1890s. We don't know. Yeah. Again, that's, why, that's, why, that's why my online friends believe that Krasko is coming back, because he was dispatched so early and offhandedly. We still have, you know, five minutes of episodes to go. The climax hasn't happened yet, and Krasko doesn't feature into it. Mm-hmm. So maybe he'll be back. He certainly was charismatic. I'd be happy to see him again. Yeah. Great performance. Yeah, that's it. Um, definitely, uh, I think Tim Shaw from from episode one is probably going to come back because say the the references to uh, to his race again in the second episode. It seems like they they've got quite a a wide reach uh, across the universe. Be surprised. They're coming up and says the big bad. So, other complaints that I saw about this scene, the staging is a little clumsy and that the doctor and Ryan and Rosa are talking so loudly. Yes, I thought that, How did the other passengers not know what was going on? (laughs) Yeah, I thought that, especially Rosa Parks, who knows them, um, would, uh, yeah, would definitely be able to hear. Yeah, they're not not exactly speaking sotto voce. Yeah. I wondered if their accent... The bus driver must have overheard them. He must have known that something was going on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're behaving so weirdly, yeah. Um, maybe they can't understand the accents. Maybe that's uh, the explanation. Now, one of the white people on the bus, speaking of bad accents, Morgan Deer, who we saw briefly a minute ago. Morgan Deer is, even though he was born in the States, he is the author of two of the worst American accents in the history of the Doctor Who canon. He was Stubby K's sidekick in Delta and the Bannerman. He was the Southern guy. Uh, and then, of course, the big Spanish audio, Minuit in Hell which is just as bad as it gets in terms of Doctor Who portrayals of America. Yeah. So when I saw Morgan Deer's name in the cast list for this yeah. episode, I thought we were in big trouble. <laughs> Fortunately, he's barely in it. Yeah. I think uh, Minuet in Hell is, is just one of the worst big Finnish stories. Such a good season for the Eighth Doctor, and then Minuet in Hell is uh, 
I don't know where, where they were going with it. It was like a, a weird kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer style thing they tried to shoehorn in. It's amazing that the, that the series survived that production. Yeah. Ah, and here we go. Here's Rosa. Here's Rosa Determined. I got goosebumps watching the scene. I really did. Yeah. Um, I watched it with my wife, who... Doctor Who doesn't really hold her interest generally, but this one, she, she sat... Uh, rapt attention. Uh, we we both had tears in our eyes at the end of the episode, which it's only about the third time I think Doctor Who's done that for me. And they sit her down in slow motion with the camera on the floor. It's just a, just a great shot, yeah. a real hero shot. Yeah. So now he's reassigning the seating because the bus is too crowded and she refuses to move. Jody looks determined. Yeah, and, and Bradley Walsh in this scene as well wanting no part of it is uh, but again the stakes are fairly small aren't they because the arrest is what makes Rosa Parks who she is Mm -hmm. and the arrest was so beneficial to American society and she lives another 50 years Mm -hmm. so facilitating her getting arrested is not a huge tragedy it should have been a no brainer for the characters yeah and I think if you had had an American writer on this you may have seen I mean, for example, if Ryan Coogler had come in and done this script, you may have seen a very different episode. Mm-hmm. But not to quibble with the choices that Mallory Blackman and Chris Chibnall made. I think it's still phenomenal, mm-hmm. even if I would have written the episode differently myself. Yeah. And there's that officer again from the hotel room. But you can barely see that attempt. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't clocked that, that it's the same, same officer. Um. And this song, I, I didn't realize at the time, but I, I saw somebody talking on Twitter about how it's the anthem of Black Lives Matter. I, I didn't know that either. And when the song came on, I was like, oh, no, not music telling me how to think. Yeah. And my kid, when I asked her at the end, did you like it? She said, I loved it, except for the song. Uh, I, I didn't realize the song had meaning. So that definitely salvages it in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was um, J.R. Southall of the... Uh, Southall of the Blue Box podcast that pointed that out. I didn't know that one. In fact, he's the person that I saw. He's a friend of a friend on Facebook, so I saw him mention it in somebody else's Facebook feed. Right. Uh, so this is our this is our nice touch. They could have gone Vincent and the Doctor. They could have got, brought Rosa Parks on board and shown her her asteroid. That's a bit of a, of a wasted opportunity. Yeah, I thought the asteroid bit was slightly odd. Really, that's. That felt like it had the least impact, the fact that there's an asteroid named after it, because there's there must be, you know, countless billions of asteroids. It's the you know, it's not um not a particularly significant asteroid, is it? It's uh the the rest of her um you know, the her legacy is far more wide reaching. Right, but in terms of special effects, it's much more impressive to have an asteroid field on screen than a museum in the year two thousand eighteen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And they go the lens flares. Yeah. Cinematography this year is phenomenal. Yeah. There it is. There's Rose's asteroid. Asteroid. Yeah, it's very, very impressive looking. Um, and it's not the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. No. <laughs> because if Stephen Moffat are writing this, that's yeah. the that's the asteroid that destroys Adric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one's still on Adric, isn't it? So yeah. I, I'm not keen on the new. Uh, Time rotor, the the big the big lump of crystal that goes up and down. I am a classic series TARDIS console room guy. For me, the classic series console room is where it's at. 
Yeah. So now like Clara is flying around the universe with the classic series console. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of like a bit organic, isn't it? Like the uh, the way they tried to go for with the the ninth and tenth Doctor had the uh, the coral. Um, I guess it's they're trying to go for that kind of look. Yeah, I I'm not crazy about any of the new TARDIS console rooms, but it looks pretty good on screen. Uh, yeah, what we can see of it. I think. Although I missed the Peter Capaldi bookcases on the second level, that, that, I thought that his was my favorite of all the new series console rooms. Totally agree. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's my my favorite new series one. Yeah, very nice. Uh, and then we've got um, Chris Noth, special guest star next week. I was hoping that he was going to be in this episode. What I saw, we'll talk about him in a minute. Chris Noth. I mean, for me, he's the most exciting part of this season because, in terms of American TV actors, Chris Noth is everything. I had back-to-back girlfriends who named their pets after Chris Noth's character on Law and Order, the original New York Law and Order. Ah, right. I've never seen so, that. I had a girlfriend who named her cats Briscoe and Logan. Briscoe yeah. was Jerry Orbach's detective character paired off with Chris Noth's Logan. And then my next girlfriend who became my wife, she had fish named Briscoe and Logan when I first met her. Brilliant. Everybody loves Chris Noth. Yeah. So I was hoping that as an American, he would be in this episode, in yeah. the American episode. Yeah, that's, I think I'd assumed that um, uh, when he was first announced as well. I only know him from uh, The Good Wife. Where he plays uh, obviously the uh, the eponymous good wife's husband, um, but I, I really like him in that. He's, uh, he's yeah, kind of a good heavyweight actor, isn't he? He was in three major long-running U.S. TV series that were all filmed in New York City: Law and Order, Sex and the City, and The Good Wife. Takes right. place in Chicago, but filmed right here in the city. I didn't realize that. So when I saw Chris Noth's name, I mean, obviously he's not the biggest American star, not a movie star, he's not huge. <laughs> but for me, Chris Noth and Doctor Who is like my world's collide. Yeah. That's for me one of the most exciting guest spots ever. I, 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 interesting about the Law and Order thing because uh, Chris Chibnall wrote Law and Order UK, which uh, I think was uh, basically the stories were based on the American ones and he adapted them for... Um, the British legal system and, and, and police. Uh, and Bradley Walsh played one of the detectives in that. And I believe that Peter Davison and Freema Adjaman also had regular spots on Law and Order, right? They were, yeah. They were uh, They were for this, the Crown Prosecution Service. Yeah, that's right. So Law and Order in the U.S. was an ensemble cast, and it was a rotating cast. People would drift in and out. Chris Noth was in the first five or six seasons, and then he left, and then he came back to one of the spinoffs years later. Right. But every every year or so, you'd have a major shakeup in the Law and Order cast. I think the, like Chris Noth is still very identifiable with Law and Order. Yeah, I think the British one maybe only had about four seasons, um, but I think the only cast member that ran all the way through was Bradley Walsh. It ran for yeah. twenty years here in the U.S., and not only that, one of the spinoffs, Special Victims Unit, is still in production. And, in fact, was on my block last week. Ah, cool. I live in a yeah. part of Brooklyn, which is very heavily populated by TV shoots. Right. But Law, law & Order, in, if you are an actor in New York and you have not been on Law & Order, you are not an actor. Yeah. <laughs> New York, the Law & Order has been very good to New York over the last 28 years. Yeah. I think the UK equivalent of that was another police show. It's called The Bill, um, which every kind of aspiring actor at some point was in so um 
I think even like Kate Winslet and people like that who went on to be, you know, kind of international movie stars, they all did some kind of uh, stint on the bill as, as a victim of crime or a criminal or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, that episode definitely works for me the second time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's not the most flattering portrayal of America, but we're used to that in Doctor Who. Yeah. But at least in terms of the accents, I think it was a little more respectful than some of the previous new series attempts at American accents. Yeah. And the history is accurate, as accurate as you can get for a series about a time traveler or a phone booth. Mm-hmm. And Vanette Robinson was great, and Crasco was a pretty good villain. Yeah, Vanette Robinson's a, a second Doctor Who role as well. She was in the Chibnall penned episode 42 uh, back in, was it series three? I was living in Los Angeles when I watched that, so yeah, that would have been 2007 or 2008. I don't remember that episode at all because I've only seen it once yeah so I don't remember her character in the slightest no I don't really I watched it um, I think I think it was uh, maybe earlier this year because um, I did some commentaries on all the Chimnal episodes to date but I think she might have got killed early on because I, I don't have a lot of recollection of her either right she's obviously a much yeah. bigger part in this episode fortunately no, yeah. she, did a, she did a terrific job. And Definitely. hopefully Mallory Blackman comes back and gives us more. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really good. Um, I guess Chibnall will kind of build uh, a regular kind of roster of writers, um, just as his, his predecessors have done. Yeah, I actually don't even know who, um, who's written this week's, the Arachnids in the UK. I am trying to go as spoiler-free for this season as I can, so all I know about Arachnids in the UK is the title. yeah. Much. It's a bit of a clumsy, and clumsy I, play on words, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. I think. Well, I think it's a play on anarchy in the UK. Yeah, but it just—I don't know. It's it, it's it's too different. I don't know. It doesn't quite doesn't quite work for me. I think. I don't know. The angels take Manhattan. Yeah. Dinosaurs on a spaceship. <laughs> Arachnids in the UK. I don't know, it kind of fits for me. Yeah. See if the episode itself holds up to the title. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Well, thank you very much for listening at home. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about Arachnids in the UK with Colin Neal. Um, I'll be recording that podcast just before the big finish day in Derby. Uh, so if any of our listeners are there on the day, it'd be nice to say hello. In the meantime, where can we find you online, Jason? I am... Um... Nominally on Twitter at, at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, and my blog, which is a bit dormant at the moment, is drwhonovels.wordpress. And I hope to get back to it at some point soon. Definitely recommend that that blog. It's uh, it's a really good read. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at trap one underscore. Uh, you can like the Trap One page on Facebook. And you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com, including all the book reviews that Jason and I have done. Uh, And please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Good night.